For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, visit a barber school in Tucson where students learn from a master of the trade. Explore the legacy of Mexican women in journalism with author Cristina Ramirez. And spend time with three artists who are balancing their creative careers with fatherhood. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Eighty-one-year-old Ray Compass owns and operates Hollywood Barber College in Tucson. He's been barbering for more than 50 years and teaching the trade to young people for more than two decades. An accomplished hairstylist, Compass won more than 60 state and national awards, many for his razor-only haircuts. Mitchell Riley visits Ray Compass and his students. He wants this place to look nice. Everybody has a chore, so get your chores done. He's always watching. He sees everything. He, he's always telling us, stand up straight. You know, don't slouch. Look professional. I feel like I'm privileged to, to learn from someone that good. And uh, he started just when he was young as me, so hopefully I'll end up just like him. Ray, I mean, he's, he's old school. He's done it for... 50 plus years. I believe Ray knows everything. <laughs> Let's say you, you're walking in here to the shop. I, I'm not looking at your shoes and I'm not looking at your clothes. I'm looking at your hair. Picture the haircut and that. I tell them we're not selling clothes, we're not selling shoes. You know, we're selling haircuts. My name is Ray Compass, and I'm the owner of Hollywood Barber College. Remember, the light spot is your guide, okay? I'll be 81 next month. Start a little lower than that, okay? I've been the teacher, you know, for quite a while. I don't know, something like 22 years now, I guess. Put this comb in, in this corner here. Oh, I've learned everything from Ray. My name is Kara Denius, and I am an instructor here at Hollywood Barber College. The straight razor, you need to make sure that the, you're not pushing no, too no, hard no. down. Just, no. Yeah, gently. As a student, I loved it. That's why I, I came back. I consider him family. He's, he's an extraordinary barber. I've learned so much. I learned still so much. So if you stay, get in front of him right here and do this. See, the guide's over to the left. Anytime you watch, you can pick up something new and different that he might do that maybe he might not say. So you just kind of watch the detail. I, I think that's exciting. Let your eyes show you the, the darkness, the shadows, you know, the shadows, you know, make a good haircut. My folks want me to go to college. They couldn't afford it, you know, so I, 
seen an ad in the paper at Tucson Barber College. My group was the second group of graduating from there, so that's how I got into barbering. I worked at night and came to school in the daytime. Way back, you know, 53, 1953, you know, I started. I was at a shop called Maestro's. Good and Italian guy. He got me, he offered me a job while I was in barber college, see? He, he taught me a lot of just how to take care of customers, you know. Yeah, that's where you put makes this part. Yeah, but you're gonna grab it this way. It's not just somebody you're gonna take it six, seven dollars away from him, you know. You gotta treat him special. Nice. Thank you, Ray. They come in and they tell me I got a birthday. Well, it don't cost you nothing. Happy birthday, you know. La niña. Muy bien, gracias. I grew up at the Water Hollywood, and uh, we opened a shop there. At that time, I was married, and my wife said, what are we going to name it? If you're at the Water Hollywood, I said, so we'll name it Hollywood. So that's how the name stuck. It's a, at that time, it's, Everybody got to shave on their way to work. So it was always the first, same customers every morning. There was more to being a barber. There was more in the industry. There was always something new that would come up and uh, I wanted to learn it. See, and I kept learning as much as I could to where I just about could do anything with hair. So when you're gonna do that, you gotta really take it up. All done with the razor, no shears, no Clippers just razor cut. It's an art. You know, it's like an artist doing a, a nice painting. I won something like 60, 66 awards. It got to be a habit. Wherever there was a, a show, competition, I wanted to go. When it comes to barbering, there's always someone watching. Whether it be the guy cutting next to you, the guy being cut next to you, you never know who's gonna walk in through that door and you should always treat everybody the same. My name is Patricio and I'm a student at Hollywood Barber College. He said that even when he was um, barbering for, for decades, he would still take these master courses and always learning. Just how to not be satisfied with being okay, always get better. My name's Alejandra, I'm 20, and I'm about to graduate. I hope to be cutting as long as Ray. <laughs> um, the more you cut, the more experience, the better you get throughout the years, you know. My mom and my aunts, they all are barbers. They all came here eight years or more ago. Everyone has their own style, and you get to make people look good and be happy with how they look. I've tried to teach them to be respectful. Take you over to the front. Yep. Customers like to be taken care of by professionals. And I've had students that I've had to say, I can't teach you. You're you're set in your ways, and that's the way it is. You know, nobody here can help you. I want them to be the best, you know, that's what they do. Happy, have a nice family.
I, I used to sit to myself one day, I like to rent a big place and have a big reunion, you know? I don't think I there's a big enough place to have a reunion. Sometimes I'll stop by at their shop, say hi. Makes me feel good that they are successful. I love them all. I say they're all my kids. That was a radio adaptation of an Arizona Illustrated story produced by Mitchell Riley. You can see the video on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Cristina Ramirez is an assistant professor in rhetoric, composition, and the teaching of English at the University of Arizona. Her book, Occupying Our Space, explores the contributions that women made to journalism in Mexico between the turn of the century and World War II, which opened doors for the inclusion of women in Mexico's political and social evolution. Here's Fernanda Echavarri with the interview. Cristina, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Fernanda. Let's just start with what is rhetorical space? Okay. I'm going to give you not such a disciplined academic definition for just for a wider audience. Um, so rhetorical space is a space, either textual or oral, where people can create and share knowledge while co-constructing that knowledge and possibly even um, creating new realities and possibilities in, in life and in communities in which they reside. So if you can translate that a little bit into what that means for your book. I use this concept of rhetorical space, but actually I use puesto because it's more grounded in the community, the Mexican community of which these women were writing. But what I am arguing is that these women were creating a, a space for themselves, that they were occupying this new puesto of inteligencia, of intellectualism that had not been uh, given to them or allowed them for for centuries. And so these women, they were claiming this rhetorical puesto, this rhetorical space. So what about your life or your education or any kind of experience made you want to start looking into what that meant? Um, my mom is second generation uh, Mexicana. She identifies as Chicana. My dad, uh, Dr. Neil Devereaux, he, um, he has his uh, 
PhD in Spanish linguistics. So at home, I was I was grounded in this this Mexican identity, right? My mom really cultivated that culture in our in our home. Then my grandmother was a uh, Chicana published Chicana writer in the 1970s. And so this was like my my impetus, my exigency, right? It's like um, I actually started a novel the, the semester before I, I started the PhD program. And one of the protagonists was to have been a soldadera, one of the, the revolutionary women who went out onto the battlefield. Well, I realized I didn't know much about them, and here I am about to write about them. So in my research, that's when I found these these women writers, right? I found um, Laurena Wright de Kleinhans, Juana Belen Gutierrez de Mendoza, Hermila Galindo, and they just, it was like a, they tapped me on the shoulder kind of thing, you know, like they found me and said, you need to write about us. And Cristina, for your book titled Occupying Our Space, The Mestiza Rhetorics of Mexican Women Journalist and Activist from 1875 to 1942, you did quite a bit of research. So why don't you tell us what that was like? Sure, that that was the the funnest part. And so I was sad when when some of this research ended. Um, I I went to Mexico. One of the first places I went was um, the state of Durango, to the non digitized archives of the the public library there in Durango. Um, I've been down to Guanajuato. I you know also researching in the digital archives here in the states at University of Texas at El Paso and also UT Austin. They have excellent uh, special collections. So my research has just been, it's been a, a fun adventure. And how long did you have all that fun? For how many years? Oh, I had a good time for about seven years, and I still go down there. And for people who may not be familiar with some of the names that you have said, why don't you tell us sort of what were the findings of, of your research? How did the women in this period of time in Mexico, women journalists and activists, how did they shape or reshape the cultural, the social and political identity of Mexico at that time? I'm going to start with Laurena Wright de Kleinhans. Laurena Wright, her last name, W-R-I-G-H-T, she was born to an American um, father and a Mexican mother, and she married a, a German. So she was very multicultural, but she received an elite education, and she was a writer. Her goal was to frame women as intellectuals. That was really her push. Her societal push in Mexico was to reframe the identity of, of women as social intellectuals out there writing and sharing their writing because this was a space that was only um, allowed for men. Now we're talking late 19th century, early 20th century. Mm -hmm. How do you see the role of Mexican women journalists now? How does the contemporary Mexican journalist compare to the women that you profile in your book? First, I want to use the word powerful and fearless. For example, Juana Belén, she was thrown in jail eight to nine times for speaking up. The role in contemporary Mexican journalism or women in, 
that that our journalists in Mexico right now. It's a it's a scary situation. Mexico ranks up there, fluctuating between four the fourth or fifth uh, most dangerous country in which to be a journalist. So, you know, Juana Belen was was at the the crux at the very beginning of that. Uh, kind of silencing of revolutionary voices. So today, you know, contemporary times, we have Elena Ponotowska. Uh, she was really the the first woman to start the investigative journalism for women. And then it's just exploded. There's all kinds of, of women journalists. And the biggest ones right now are like Lydia Cacho, um, Anabel Hernandez, um, Carmen Aristegui. I mean, these women are, are speaking truth to power in a, in a puesto, in a rhetorical space that is about life and death. It's dangerous. Uh, journalists are being um, shot, murdered, assassinated in broad daylight for, for what they write and for what they say. As we wrap up this interview, Cristina, I just want to ask you, you were talking about journalists being the voices of a community, of a country, of a, of a people. And how important is it to have those female voices in the conversation in, in Mexican journalism? It's of utmost importance um, because the women bring a different perspective. And we are more than half of the population, right? And so when you only have men's voices out there as journalists and writers, you're cutting off half of the, the population. So when women are writing and speaking in public, um, you're, you're bringing into this puesto, this rhetorical space, a, a much needed uh, perspective. Cristina Ramirez, author of Occupying Our Space, The Mestiza Rhetorics of Mexican Women Journalists and Activists from 1875 to 1942. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me, Fernanda. The Confluence Center for Creative Inquiry Show and Tell series presents a lecture by Cristina Ramirez Wednesday at 6 p.m. at the Playground Bar and Lounge at 278 East Congress Street. A good parent has to learn about sacrifice, as does anyone who follows an artistic dream as a way of making a living. Andrew Brown decided to talk with three local men, who are both fathers and artists, to hear their reflections on staying true to their children and to their art. Painter and father Donovan White begins. When I turn on, Everything, the world to me, looks like something I could add something to it. Like either with color or just, I'd love to solve the world's problems. I can't do that, so maybe I could put a little band-aid on it. <laughs> you know, a little funny band-aid on it. You know, it's like knowing that somebody out there is going to have a little quirk or a little smile. I'm like, hey, there's Donovan White. <laughs> I'm Tom Wolbank. I'm a, a Tucson-based musician, blues musician. 
I've been playing for about 25 years. I'm an artist as well. My name is Neymar Moore and uh, I have been living in Tucson for 17 years. I'm originally from Paris, France. I'm a musician. If you're an artist, you, you realize that you're, you're a little bit different, you know what I mean? And society views you as different. Society views you until you make a name or money as a shiftless layabout. It's not selfish, but you definitely, I guess to really, really focus on something, you kind of shut out the outside world around you. That's exactly what I, what I told myself. It's like, you are a musician, that's what you love. That's what I, I want to be. I'll be a musician. I, I'm, I may not be rich, I may not be uh, whatever, but that's what I want to be. I got married when I was 27 and I wanted to, I wasn't thinking too much about how it would affect my life, but I was thinking, well, if we have kids, that's great. When I turned 33, the question was not like, oh, I want to have a child. The question became all of a sudden, it's like, I hope in my life I will experience that because the idea of never have a child, for me, seemed very sad all of a sudden. Going back on it, you know, I wish I, I wish I was in a financial spot to have kids when I was 18 or 19 or 20, you know, because now I'd have a little partner around. But uh, the one thing that I, that I have, no, you know, kids are expensive, man. You got to be, you got to be ready to dump what you're doing to really step down on the kid, you know. Everyone talks about the female uh, biological clock, and everyone's like, oh. It's ticking, you know, it's like, oh, you're getting older, you should have a baby or it's gonna become dangerous. And it's like, first of all, smack, you know what I mean? You don't, I don't think it's you being in touch with your feminine side. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a male thing as well, you know? Um, you know, if you're ready, you're ready. We are picking up my child. He has a half day today. It is uh, a parent-teacher conference, which he had uh, aced high yesterday when we went to ours. What up, dude? Having the child, actually, there was no thinking at all. At all. It just happened. I'm from a Spider-Man mask. Because I want to be Spider-Man. And I don't and a dolphin. I think it doesn't change you. It makes you become who you are even more, you know? It brings out the person you are uh, already. And it's very exciting. It's very, very exciting. You ready? Where are you go swimming? Yeah, it's hot. It's hot. The sun's 1,000 degrees. It is 1,000 degrees. All right, let's get up here. Good job. Just to focus on another being is, is a healthy thing. You know, it it, uh, it makes you grow as a person. Anything you do, there's 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 this little sponge that's gonna soak it up. What having kids taught me is just proper time management. You know, have enough time to turn everything off, to refresh the batteries, to be able to do fun stuff. Anything you decide to do has to be done. 
and you just don't. Uh, so you cut the, how you say that? Cut the, <laughs> you cut the crap. Because by the way, your hands are in crap quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, oh, there are horror stories, man. They're they're just little. They're like just little drunk people. <laughs> they're, like, they're like having. It's like taking care of all your little drunk friends. You know, they're going around breaking stuff. They're pooping their pants. They're peeing everywhere. They're yeah. There's throwing up, throwing food. You're not just like this um, provider for the child. You are. That's part of you. But if you don't hold on to what you are, you know what I mean. And that's a separate thing. So there is that. You've got to be selfish. It's a positive thing. You've got to be selfish with your time or you'll lose uh, what you are, you know what I mean? And if you're an artist, you've got to find the time to do your art. Gone are the days where, you know, I'm going to the office. Here you go, honey, here's the kids. <laughs> I'm gone. It's a, it's a split job now, you know. Fathers are responsible for a lot of, you know, like, I mean, just you know, half as it should be, you know I mean? Just, you know, half the, the raising, nurturing, and, and, you know, you gotta change the diapers. You gotta, you gotta, you know, make the baby food. You gotta, you know, do the homework and all that. You wait things that, is it really worth it for me to hang out till two in the morning with a possible hangover? You just prefer being in shape in the next day because otherwise it's hell, you know? Count them off. One, two, three. <laughs> It's cool being a dad. Temper down, solid baby. Every project that I choose to embark on now, it's whether it's for financial gain or not, it's something I'm gonna be proud of and something that I want to, you know, just pass on to my kid and, and make him, you know, proud of his pop. <laughs> make my family proud of me. Yeah, be more productive, professionally, financially, also. It's very strange. Watching them progress, watching myself progress, because of that, and that's, yeah, it wouldn't change it for the world. You learn a lot about yourself. You address stuff in your life that makes you a better person that you maybe wouldn't have before. Est un épien singulier. Dans sa toile, il l'attend pour attraper les brigands. Attention, car l'armée est là. Ouais, super. Mm -hmm. That story was produced by Andrew Brown for Arizona Illustrated. You can see the art dads and their kids at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. Can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>